That's life, Eddie. <laughs> oh, Grace, that's politics. Life's what everybody else does, remember? Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm method bullshitty bald spot Sarah Debunting, and I'm here with dairy counselor Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Hey. We are thrilled to be joined by our guest today, my former co-host on Go Pirates and fellow member of the Aaron Crickstein Appreciation Society, drowsy juror John Ramos. Welcome, John. Uh, I'm awake. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if you tap your pen really loudly on a legal pad. Sure. (laughs) That would help. Um, No one ever clues into that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Conveniently for this movie. And the movie in question today is Suspect. Probably the Dennis Quaid movie I've seen the most times. I'm not totally sure it holds up, she says, understatedly. Uh, But before we get into the, the film itself, I believe we have the customary pod business. Jeb Lund, I feel like you have a pretty good excuse this time around for not having listened to the Denisons, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you got past the 27 second mark. Where are you with that? I was so excited. I'm going to level with you. I was so excited to hear somebody else answer this that I forgot that I essentially have to answer this. Uh, I was just like, what's John going to do? You know, has he heard anything? (laughs) Has he encountered it? Like, is there another pop cultural realm that I don't orbit? where there is some sort of currency to the Denisons. Like, I was hoping maybe this just breaks it open for me in a way that helps me not have to venture in there on my own. Well, John, is that about to occur? Well, this was kind of a very meta situation for me because I definitely didn't want to listen to the Denisons, but I also wanted an excuse. So what I did was go back and listen to all past episodes and listen to your excuses for why you didn't listen to the Denisons. <laughs> okay. And that took up so much time that I didn't have time to listen to the Denisons. <laughs> you know, we should have seen this coming. <laughs> but we didn't. And another thing we didn't do was listen to the Denisons because I too found other things to do, including, and this is not a joke, I literally braided and sewed together a rug. <laughs> Could have listened to the Denisons while doing that. Didn't. What public works project are you going to be up to in season four? Oh, I couldn't make it. I was digging a canal. <laughs> I, it, that might happen. We are actually having a little like uh, water intrusion issue. So like look forward to excuses involving caulking, mudding and taping. I had to purge the laugh. Leaks are always good when you have like, you know, multiple pets around to track the water through the, through the entire house. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one thing they're good for. Uh, we still haven't discovered what the Denisons is good for, except an ongoing bit about our not listening to it. <laughs> All right, let's let's get into suspect, shall we? I. Uh, had not seen this after that period when it was on HBO in, I guess, 88 or 89, four times a day. And I watched it each time and can confirm. Yeah. Found it <laughs> both very, for yourself and myself. Found yeah. it very satisfying because, you know, Dennis Quaid was in a suit cut like a diamond and looked foxy. And I was not in a position to be critical because, you know. So. 
I was pleased that it held up, even though it absolutely uh, should not have. Let's get into a plot summary taken in part from Dessen Howe's review uh, at the time in the Washington Post. Quote, One power play day, a Supreme Court justice hands a woman an envelope, signs a couple of legal papers, and calmly blows his brains out. That woman is later found drifting under Key Bridge with her throat cut. Carl, a homeless man, also a dead ringer for Rasputin and given to outbursts of violence, is arrested with the dead woman's purse, and public defender Kathleen Riley, Cher, gets the case. These events occur with all the excitement of a motion to set aside emotion. Producer Daniel A. Sherko could have saved money by holding notes up to the lens. Dennis Quaid plays Eddie Sanger, who's lobbying for a crucial House vote on behalf of a milk association. And in a sequence that has no relationship to the story, except to peek at Washington while it's power brokering, he seduces a congresswoman. After getting roped into jury duty for Cher's case, he decides to help her out with investigations of his own, a legal violation that could jeopardize her whole defense. Director Yates makes some effective use of suspense in the second half. In a library, Quaid must, without prior warning, avoid chumming up with Cher under the watchful eye of Judge Matthew Helms, John Mahoney. Later, an unknown assailant chases Cher through a murky basement labyrinth of prison bars, corridors, and shadows. But for the most part, this case, which includes a convenient last-minute taped confession and a lifeless Cher-Quaid romance, should have been thrown out of court. End quote. This is sort of bleeding into the contemporary reviews section, but did that review leave out any key plotting? They say that they, it, there was a big, you know, kind of last minute reveal there, but they don't say what it is. Um, I think it's a little harsh to say that it came out of completely nowhere, um, but they certainly they didn't do the kind of, I think, standard for the thriller genre where the audience kind of gets to figure it out before. Like if you were to compare it to a contemporary thriller of the time, let's say like a jagged edge, the audience figures out who it is. And there's like, you know, 10 minutes of is the heroine going to survive before, you know, she defeats him basically. So right. this all happens, you know, under the danger happens before you find out who it is. So it's a little bit of a flip in structure, but that didn't bother me to the degree that some of the reviews, you know, seem to stick on. Yeah. But then again, like <laughs> I was 16 when this came out. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Quaid did a lot for me in this role. So, you know, maybe I'm not the most objective either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with the share uh, Quaid chemistry quibble, which we can get into later. First, let me read a little snippet of Roger Ebert's review, which speaks to what John was talking about. He gave it two and a half stars out of four. Quote, Art films can play all the games they want, but if you're going to make a film in a commercial genre, then I think you have to play by the rules of that genre. In the case of a courtroom whodunit, that means you can't produce the guilty man out of left field with no clues and no preparation. The audience has to have a fair chance to figure things out. Suspect is a well-made thriller, but it was spoiled for me by an extraordinary closing scene where Cher, as the defense attorney, solves the case with all the logic of a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. End quote. Um, the problem for me in assessing whether this was unfair, this ending, 
is that I've already known it for over 30 years. So (laughs) let us turn to Jeb. Jeb, had you ever even seen this movie before? And if so, did you feel like we kind of got... So I'd actually probably seen this as much as the two of you. I had HBO then, I think it was maybe 11. And then we had a really good local video store that sold a lot of old VHS tapes for like $9. And this was one Uh. that my mom got. And so it was in the VCR regularly after this left HBO. Oh, yeah. I forgot this was in your mom's... uh... Bunk. Yeah, with, <laughs> within, the, uh, within the Quay Demi Crush area, right? But the, uh, like, I managed to forget almost everything about it other than, like, in, in, in fact, in my brain, it had gotten sort of mushed together with the accused. So I hadn't gone back because I thought there was, like, some sort of horrifying, Ooh. like, violative scene in it. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> I was relieved as soon as I started watching it. I was like, oh, yeah, no, this isn't that movie. But nothing else came back. But they really, I think they foregrounded the fact that Mahoney could have been complicit somehow pretty well. Because you have, like, the fact that he's just ruthlessly ruling against her. He asked for this this case when he could have just dumped a case off uh, and, and not swapped it for anything. There was enough sinisterness in him that, like, it isn't feel that much left field. But it is probably, like, in terms of courtroom drama, like number two on the bad courtroom after now imagine she's white uh at the end of a time to kill like it, the whole court thing was just going back and watching it with adult eyes it was like i did not know that everybody in this movie was this dumb yeah yeah that's, I, that's the sticking <laughs> point i think sorry go ahead john no i was gonna say uh you know it really occurred to me how much law and order has done to educate the american public about courtroom procedure like <laughs> And, and just investigation in general, like the whole thing about his handedness was like, are we in third grade? Like, really? Like, I would expect anyone to have, you know, just checked it. it it's in our DNA now to like think of that, that kind of thing. So a lot of it was just very basic, I think. But also movies weren't as good then. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just generally, you know, like, I mean. I look at, you know, some classics from my, like, Trading trading Places is one of, you know, a movie that I have such a fond memories of. But I went back and watched it recently, and, like, the first 20 minutes is basically, like, all establishing shots of Philadelphia. It's just, like, we don't, like, sit still for that kind of shit anymore. <laughs> yeah. We just don't. It's yeah. true. I think you're absolutely right. Like all the courtroom scenes are, and you know, you don't have like shitty actors in this movie, but like even Joe Mantegna and Cher can't really cover for the fact that the rules of procedure are being regularly violated during both direct and cross-examination. And my like the extent of my legal knowledge is having dated a 1L 20 years ago so (laughs) like if it's that glaring to me i mean it you know it's glaring but at the same time i was surprised to realize that this movie is like two hours long it it should feel that long but it really didn't feel that long to me yeah i'd agree with that Part of it maybe is because i i know it so well that (laughs) when you know what's coming you're not like kind of waiting for that next thing necessarily but i i I didn't have any trouble sitting through it again you know for sure um as much as you know some of the courtroom stuff is bad it's not like really plotting in the same you know so it's not it's not slow i don't think it's just uh you know again as i said basic (laughs) 
Yeah. I got a sort of um, fugitive vibe from it. I'm not sure why, but just this like painstakingly built story that was taking pleasure in its own atmospherics, which was, you know, that's a plus for me. I've seen The Fugitive like a million times. Also, Jeb, did you have pacing issues or no? Kind of along with what you were saying, I liked certain sequences, even if they might have been a little bit longer, like, you know, Cher being chased down a, a tunnel, even though that's kind of like, oh, how many times have we done this? It looked and sounded great. It was, yeah, it made me anxious. Very Pacula. Um, I thought it was good. Yeah. And there's a lot, I mean, it's it's a busy plot, but there isn't a whole lot that's extraneous, except for maybe like the the most of his lobbying stuff to kind of like complicate him and make you wonder if he's being sincere in... Uh, you know, approaching Cher romantically, like, is this just another transaction? But I mean, you could probably have cut that, but everything else just has a purpose. You know, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a particularly sloppy plot by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. In terms of atmosphere too, I think they use just the, the DC architecture a lot, really, really well too. And that, you know, the, the, the suspense when she's, you know, she's at the Metro and it's like, well, in one way it seems kind of public but there are shadows everywhere there's these big you know pockets where no one can see you it's like it's a good thrillery setup you know it's a it's it's rich in terms of venue i think but yeah i pulled a clip from the scene where they're at a cocktail party and with the exception of the fact that he served a um martini well, all right. His pronunciation of Stoli is pretty interesting. We'll get into it. But uh, and he's also served this martini in like a like a wedding Cordial. banquet um, goblet for Chardonnay, which is weird. But they, it's the thing you get your parfait in at the end of the banquet meal too. That's the yeah. That, you're totally right. <laughs> yeah, there should be like a mint leaf at the top. Yeah, totally. Um, but. Uh, they're trying to get a lot of the lobbying atmospherics done in this. And the the line at the beginning is really, it gets a lot of DCing done. And in a way that I didn't find too clumsily expositional, yes, probably all of this should have been, it should have been cut, but I thought it was well enough done that it could stay. So here is clip two. What are you, an immigrant? Nobody has jury duty. Next, you're going to tell me you vote. Good evening, Mr. Sanger. Mr. Abbott. Well, hello, Marilyn. How's things, Eddie? I haven't seen you around much. What do you want to drink? Stole us tonight a vodka martini straight up three hours. So, you working? Justice. Good. Third girl in the deputy attorney general's office. Paul Gray. <laughs> Type much? <laughs> the job doesn't require much typing. Yeah. Anyway, it's temporary. Paul says he wants to groom me for management. <sighs> I wish I had a dollar for every promise. Just once I wish someone would say to me, I can't help you out. Let's go. Oh, the boy Paul. Hi, Paul. How are you? Let's catch up sometime. Yeah. Congressman? How's it look, Eddie? Well, it's down to the wire, sir. Call me if I can do anything. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Fuck him. I call him three different times. He never returns my call. So, yeah, they get a lot done in that scene. It does feel a lot like it, it sort of has the Hallmark movie vibe of like, this is sort of a child's idea of what a lobbyist must be like. Cause, <laughs> like the, yeah. the legal procedure is definitely like what a child's idea of a defense attorney is like. But uh, I don't know, like uh, part of it, too, might be maybe this was 
more realistic back when we still had earmarks, you know, and when there was still yeah. like election funding regulation that was actually somewhat stringent and you didn't just have like you know the lobbyist job wasn't just to go rent a whole restaurant for you and all your friends to have a thousand dollar plate dinner and then just sort of like i fuck you the whole night going like you know what that means right like this is maybe this was more plausible but it's still kind of like <laughs> how schoolhouse rocky this is like corruption <laughs> for kindergarten i i also wonder if like he weren't a lobbyist for something from texas like oil and they're like that's too unsympathetic it has to be something wholesome like milk so now he's got to be from wisconsin like not in a million years can dennis quaid convince me that he's from anywhere except texas sorry buddy i do love all the uh the signposts of the time you know like we saw um you see like gas 84 cents oh, monthly parking 40 40 dollars <laughs> you know but like one of the one of the also side points that i thought was uh it, it was early enough in uh Stoli's, like penetration into the u.s that he felt he had to say stolichnaya rather than just Stoli, which like i think everyone would say now so that was kind of funny too like <laughs> plus his pronunciation oh <laughs> yeah. yeah buddy can we talk about mahoney's head mustache <laughs> <laughs> okay well there's the there's the like cotton club mustache but then like that that bald situation is not organic right like that's fake he like gave himself a tonsure for this role no <laughs> huh yeah i didn't think about that he lost hair for the role wow that's that is interesting yeah <laughs> or that's just like some kind of bald cap like i just don't i don't understand why that was done like usually i understand but i've never seen another fake like non-wig bald cap situation like this one and i don't understand why it was done i wonder if it was to make his hair look similar to the other guy who i'm not remembering what his name is now he's the the one who paul bosco played um Oh yeah, because yeah. there were a lot uh, of shots where, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're, you know, even when when she's being chased in the tunnel, like they're trying to keep the physical similarities between those two as much as possible. So I wonder if there was some some thought there. It seems kind of a stretch, but I, I mean, I can't yeah, think of any other it. reason why they would do it. Yeah, that's a good take. Uh, I I vote you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Thanks. same. Um, speaking of Paul Bosco was, uh, you know, the, the 80s movie that I remember him most from was uh, his turn in Working Girl, uh, okay. where he played Mr. Mr. Trask, the, uh, the radio magnate who um, <laughs> eventually uh, throws uh, Sigourney Weaver to the wolves at the end. It's pretty, it was good to see him, but he was a pretty, pretty big fixture in, uh, you know, 80s character actor roles, I think. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I remember him from uh, The Money Pit. <laughs> Two weeks. <laughs> Sarah, did you recognize uh, the very young Michael Beach as the uh, parking lot yes, attendant? Yes, I did. He'll be in the visual aids. Uh, he and Dennis Quaid in a I single would booth. No less. Yeah, not not hating that. Um, this was directed by Peter Yates, who directed Bullet. This is a reunion of him and Dennis Quaid from Breaking Away, which he directed, mm -hmm. and he directed Mother Jugs and Speed because someone had to. Also, the deep, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. The screenwriter, uh, 
with whom I share a birthday, wrote extremely loud and incredibly boring. Um, no. <laughs> Benjamin Borton. And he created The Heights. Don't ask that guy. You also have to be careful when you go on YouTube to get The Heights soundtrack. There's only one really, one really good okay. version. The rest of them suck. One really good version of The Heights soundtrack. <laughs> yes. The, uh, the accused murderer, the Rasputin-like uh, character is played by Liam Neeson. Yeah, um, which I think is his intro to American audiences. I think this movie—it's either that or Deadpool, right? Like the Dirty Harry Deadpool one, because he plays like the obnoxious right. ponytail director. This. But I can't remember the date of that. Couldn't swear to it though. And then when he was also on the Bounty, he was on uh, which was uh, eighty-four or eighty-six or mm. something. The Peter Weir Bounty, I think. So maybe that was the the preview. But he gets overwhelmed because that's like everybody else is in that. I mean, this is kind like of an everyone. everyone situation. Also, yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, he cleans up pretty, pretty good yeah. considering the state that he's in when we meet him. I'm just like, he's getting hotter every scene. I'm not yeah. sure how this is working. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just keep like removing more and more facial hair and right. stitching various things up. <laughs> I mean, that reveal of his handedness is like extremely cheap, but I like, I still love it. I still find it very effective. Like, Yeah. But a lot of that is just muscle memory from having seen this a million times and being like, and yeah. here he is catching the thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> you can definitely tell, though, that based on the writing, like actual Liam Neeson, I don't think is left handed because oof, struggling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think Mahoney is very good in this, you know, given, you know, there's a limited amount that he can do without, you know, tipping spoiling it. the ending, I guess. Yeah. but. Uh, but within the confines of what he has to do, I think he's I think he's quite good. But I guess that's not really a surprise. Was this before or after Moonstruck this came out? Before? This was before, I okay. think. Yeah, I yeah. think it was a year before. Yeah. And Cher is really not very Cher in this at all. You know, when you look at you know some of the other bigger movie roles that she's known for, um, she's you know quite, uh, I think she's believable as a defense attorney. Maybe not. You know, maybe not all the writing is just believable, like from a legal standpoint generally, but like, but in terms of character, I I, I buy it. Oh. Yeah, she's good. She has kind of a thankless role too, because she's supposed to. I mean, I I get the sense that they were like, well, let's cast somebody like her so we can bill like a a middle aged career woman, you know, who is unafraid to be single but then we're going to write her like a ditzy ingenue because she's talking about being burnt out as a defender of murderers and uh and violent criminals and then of course the whole plot is like oh should i figure right. out what how his hands work oh and then you know this lobbyist who shows up is like by, by the way i i did like the barest minimum investigation i went out to this car that's like a crime scene that's been parked out by the river for like a year and uh, and I looked at it and I found a clue like I, maybe you'd have thought of that. I don't know. Yeah, give, give it a shot later. I mean, it's just it's very patronizing, at the, but still trying to capitalize on her being a more sophisticated woman. And she has to try to thread like a really, really narrow needle. Also, they lock they lock her into a cell like to talk to her violent client like and then they're surprised when he attacks her like that was. That was a bit of a, a bit much. And again. then they <laughs> just, you know, and then they're allowed to just be in even closer quarters with a chalkboard. Like, right. Uh, okay. 
The other thing is she really has to sort of get the audience on her side vis-a-vis going along with Eddie Sanger's extremely inappropriate and, you know, felonious attempts to help her. I didn't find that as credible as I did sort of during my first round of watching this. That it's, And I also didn't find it credible that the judge wouldn't have, having already smelled this rat and alerted her to the fact that he has smelled it like twice, why wouldn't he just boot this juror and seat the alternate? I know. You get, you get a lot of vibes of like, you know, <laughs> the principal and Ferris Bueller trying to like chase after Ferris and catch him in the act. But it's like you could just like, you know, use your authority and just like get rid of him here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's that's probably simpler all told yeah <laughs> yeah but like i had a whole bunch of notes like this about stuff that didn't make sense and shouldn't work but i mean i still really enjoyed revisiting this and i did not feel like it was two hours long and i don't need to like watch it four times a day anymore but it was pleasant to revisit it so should we uh should we rate this fellow jurors yeah, I mean, for me, this is like, I remember this as part of a, you know, a, an era where like the thriller was like really, you know, the, like this is pre like, I think John Grisham novels, you know, but you had your Jagged Edge, Black Widow, The Morning After, you know, I think of these all, you know, kind of in the same way. They're like very serviceable and very watchable. Mm-hmm. So even though the the legal procedure again is like kind of laughable, that's I do find that a little bit charming too, like back in a, in a time when you know you could assume that people didn't know everything at that point. So I would give it probably what I would give it at the time, which is a seven for what it was. I thought it did a, a very good job. Obviously, there was a lot more that could have been done, but um, but at two hours, it was a fine sit, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. So. Yeah, very good, Jeb. Since I don't know where else to put these before we go out on reviewing this, I did just had a, a couple things that I, I sort of enjoyed in that like, well, that's not right, but you know, how charming kind of way. Um, this movie has that weird tick that like a lot of movies set in a city do where like they can't have anything happen on a street without like turning the foley up and then the background comments, like every single person who uses a road constantly <laughs> is jeering out their window. Uh, and we get that like seven minutes in. Oh, yeah. And it's the, where does she think she's going? Out of the way, lady. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's right. I, I forgot, too, that she gets like, she gets kind of carjacked at the at the, at the the beginning. And she just like gets to work and she's just like, well, it's just another day. I'm just like, oh, this, this was a different era we're living in. Yeah. Sure. C- cities of the late 80s. Like, well, <laughs> don't wear an heirloom to work, folks. <laughs> the more you yeah. know this is this is a movie that's not afraid to blend two genres i care a lot about which is the polar bear club and finding a floater <laughs> uh what what's the briscoe uh what's the briscoe cold open line on that one shit i don't know that's brisk baby <laughs> <laughs> I actually did like stop and freeze frame it during the carjacking thing because like I just wondered, you know, how racist is this? And just to sort of calibrate it. And it's not racist, just lazy. I mean, like they do have like non-white people doing it, but 
demographically in G- DC, you could probably have gotten away with that and have that be like just a, all right, a choice that you made. But they rob her. She's dri- driving this like busted ass old brown Chevy Citation. Yeah. <laughs> and like two lanes over is like a big Cadillac or Oldsmobile. I can't make out the emblem. But it also happens to be right adjacent to the park they escape into. So it's like you're going to go rob the lady who looks like she's barely making payments on this thing instead of anybody else. Uh, no, it's not going to work that way. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, let's let's rob Cher. She's got to be loaded. Thing. <laughs> it's like, come on, Eric Roth, you you know better than this. But I think, you know, it's it's better than the sum of its parts, although the individual parts in, in some cases, like the the, you know, the thriller chase sequence are well above average, I think, and uh, and work really well. But like it, it does better than it should on paper. It's pretty ridiculous. I mean, this is a plot that hinges on like, well, I switch eights to nines. Like that, <laughs> yeah, like that's not that a tick that we all have. <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> And I have no other place to put this, but I, I did, we did, you know, I was going to try and, and sandwich it in earlier. I just want to listen to this one clip of, of share, um, of Ms. Riley testifying, uh, because it is just a, uh, it's a tremendous bit of drama. The fact is it upsets you so much that you had a breakdown. You were discharged from the army for psychiatric reasons. And you spent six years in a veterans hospital, all because you were a good soldier who thought he needed a reason to kill. Carl, what were your dreams? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, in light of that, six. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm not really sure how they're directly connected, but they are. That's completely fair. Um, yeah, I'd agree. being graded on such a steep curve of um, <laughs> my quaid lady boner and also just other fond feelings about it from uh, my youth. So uh, it doesn't merit this, but it's getting it anyway. Eight. Ooh. I mean, the sum of the parts absolutely really does net out at like a five and a half, but <laughs> my podcast, if I want to give it an eight, I'm giving it an eight. So now we turn to the quadosity, which I think is slightly easier to calibrate here than the, the overall uh, quality. There are some things coming up in the season three docket in which he is grievously miscast. I'm not buying that he's a milk lobbyist from Wisconsin, but I kind of buy the sleaze level. So anyone else feel like he was perfect for this? Yeah, I did actually. So for me, like uh, this is an exciting time to come in here because, uh, you know, having listened along to all the properties that you've done, this is like, this is kind of the first one where he's, he's really like controlling and targeting his charm rather than just being like, this southern hose just like languidly spraying <laughs> charm in every general direction you know like <laughs> focusing things into southern a smirk hose. instead of a grin you know so i i think he's really good actually yeah i think the lobbyist thing it does inform character and does make him a little bit more unreliable which is like part of the genre but like i think he was really good um plus like <laughs> i know like some of the chemistry may seem flat, but like there's a scene where they uh, they contrive to get his shirt off, basically, which I was not mad about because um, <laughs> he, he gets stabbed, uh, you know, defending Cher. And then like he starts like kissing her and she kisses him back a little bit, but then she pulls away and she's like, good night. And like, look, I understand like people like what they like. They want what they want. No one should do whatever they you know don't feel like doing. 
But my 16-year-old self, when I saw this, like, yelled out when she went to bed. I was like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And even he sort of makes that face. Yeah. I mean, there is one scene. Well, let me play a clip because uh, he rolls out this line on this um, congresswoman that ends up, you know, he ends up boning. And, uh, oh my God, her hair too is so 80s. Oh God, she really is. She's not at um, take this thing back to Baltimore lady level, but right. same, same flavor. <laughs> so he, this was just like two actors enjoying that they're playing two professionals who know exactly what's happening here and they're just going to like do the steps anyway. So here's the clip. I never noticed that before your eyes. Sometimes they're blue, sometimes they're green. You're still a handful short. <laughs> I told you my vote's not for sale. Oh, I can't help myself, Grace. It's a lovely thought anyway. Nobody's mentioned my eyes. I mean, leaving aside the fact that I'm not clear what that last bit of her line is supposed to mean, this is like, if I had to explain to visitors from outer space, like, wh- what are we, what are you doing with this podcast? What is the point of this? What are you trying to get at? This would be the scene, I think. That it's like th- this. This is fairly peak quadosity. Um There is a moment after this where he shot an extreme close-up having a sad about how he's a big whore we'll be able to see that in our visual aids uh quite in full pod on twitter but yeah aside from that which is not on him he's quite good in this feels very natural correctly cast the wisconsin milk thing is also not his fault but you know that's it's fine he looks good in lobbyist drag too as you said you know with a you know he's got a great suit looks good in a you know Looks good in a trench coat. Um, yeah, different look, mm-hmm. but definitely pulls it off, I think. Yeah, and you also get to see him in the trademark Levi's, which I'm not mad at either. Mm-hmm. Nope. It also, it hits a, a, some of the same buttons as Inner Space, I think, you know, did for you, uh, Sarah, where he's got a he's in a confined area and he's got to get his charm out of it. So, uh-huh. like, by being on the jury and then sequestered. And I think maybe that helps to like with what you were saying, John, of like focusing that charm and then having to to channel it more to purpose rather than having it just be sort of like an an omnidirectional mood. <laughs> um, but like it, that that kind of the fact that he's exuding it through those barriers, I think, really plays to to you know like just his his whole quadosity. Yeah. Also in the fat in the fashion department, the, when he when he gets stabbed, that that wool sweater that he's wearing looks like it weighs about sixty pounds. That was definitely like. <laughs> definitely true to the fashion of the time as well yeah oh yeah her her sweater down like halfway down her thigh that was very transporting i was like i needed her to get out those sort of like rose colored giant very slightly tinted sunglasses where the uh the the little the stem from that hangs from your ear like it connects at the bottom of the glass for some reason right i needed that and like the giant billowy like blouse somewhere i was almost there yeah trifecta I would wear those boots that she had tomorrow. Those were great. Yeah. Ah, scrunch boots. Um, but we're not we're not here to rate the fashion of Cher movies. We're here <laughs> to rate the quaidosity of Quaid movies. I had another clip, but I think we all get the gist and we're all pretty much in agreement. John, would you like to lead us off again? Um, sure. Uh I think you see 
a really good example of his, you know, general quadosity. It's a variant of his, you know, of his southern quadosity. So I wouldn't rate it maybe like quite as quintessentially, but I would give it an eight. That was actually where I was. I was debating eight and nine, but I think I, you know, I didn't know how much to penalize him for the the kind of hurried nature of the seduction between uh, uh, him and Cher's uh, character. I, you know, that's more on the script, but like that forlorn, like, oh God, what have I done was a little too like mopey puppy doggy for somebody who's this much of a realist. Yeah. In his, uh, mm-hmm. in his job. But like, otherwise it's just so, everything else is so intense and so on point that it, it really is like spiking the, uh, the meter. So are you at an eight or a nine? An eight. Yeah. Okay. I agree that the chemistry between them is not great. Like, I believe that they like each other, but I don't believe that they want a bone. So, but that's not really his fault. And also, like, having chemistry with Cher is like having chemistry with an extremely expensive candle in some ways. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's beautiful and it smells pretty good and it's sparkly and all, but I mean, is that the idea? (laughs) I guess it depends on the shape. So what do we do? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do I, you know, we light it first or what happens now? Um anyway, that's Carl, the... what were your dreams? <laughs> uh I mean, there there is a joke here about um not lighting one's pubes on fire, but I can't get to it, so I'm just gonna give Quaid a nine. <laughs> try to get out of this yeah when i think about (laughs) you drawing such attention to that what were your dreams does make me think maybe maybe john mahoney like had a point being in a bad mood during this trial the whole time (laughs) right it's like counselor you made like how big is god asked and answered It just reminded me uh, of that line in Bring It On, where she's like, when really it was the angle, which she slammed it to the ground. Don't, yeah. <laughs> can cut that out later. All right. Well, this, I think, has set a new record on this here podcast for high ratings across the board. I would definitely give our guest very high ratings. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. I did not think I would get to <laughs> express my thoughts on this movie at any point in my life uh, <laughs> in such a forum. So, Well, you know, 2020 has been a, a, a startler all around. So <laughs> It has indeed. And it's nice to, uh, you know, again, bring it back around to the Denissance. It's nice to... Uh, Revisited time when my feelings about Dennis Quaid were quite uncomplicated. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Times like, you know, J- January of this year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, la. Next time on Quaid in Full DOA and how. In the meantime, no need to go to the library to check our show notes. They're right below the episode in your podcast app. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod and get even more Quaid content. Visual aids, dramatic readings of old magazines, music reviews. That's at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? What are you, an immigrant? Go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and vote for Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
I mean, they don't pay me enough to freeze my Jones off and stay awake, too. You know what I'm saying? 